Awesome. So this is, I've been uh, waiting to do this episode for a while. I, it's going to be a very, very special episode. Uh, yeah, the basic thing I want to talk about is, you know, how, um, uh, what disabled people need by and large, you know, the vast majority of disabled people have some form of chronic pain and uh, you know, I don't see most disability advocates talking about this, um, is that the medical system is not going to work for them and the palliative care doctors and pain management doctors that, you know, make these, you know, very sick bedridden people come like get wheeled in uh, to pee in a cup and take drug tests and all this stuff just to get like, you know, some tramadol or something uh for their terrible injuries and pain you know what all these people are not talking about is that we can just solve this chronic pain problem right now by having in by growing lots of opium or growing lots of poppies opium poppies and harvesting that opium and um getting it to people who need it and that's kind of you know uh, what used to happen. And for some reason, as a society, we stopped doing that. We forgot how important opium was. Um, but yeah, I, you know, actually feel free to introduce yourself. I, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, Hey everybody, this is a long time, uh, you know, friend and friend and ally of the podcast, uh, um, herb saint. And I'm, a also a long time, um, friend and ally and supporter of the pro opium growing cause. Um, I've had my own personal experiences with opium and uh, I have a, I also share an interest with our host here in terms of, I believe in the advocacy for smoking and, and personal growth of opium, not only as like a sort of a form of resistance to government um, control of agriculture and like um, the right to grow and propagate plants that um, like for personal growth and consumption, but also um, for chronic pain management for people with unresolvable lifelong and, and for personal as well, management of pain um, for the considerable disabled population, not only of America, but like um, in opium growing country all areas all over the country um, and all over the world where people need to deal with pain management and disabled populations. Right, right, yeah. And so um, we both, you know, I introduced you, I believe, uh, to this book, Opium for the Masses, yes. Harvesting Nature's Best Pain Medication by Jim Hawkshire. Mm. And I I really like this book because it, it, it has basically everything because it gives you a whole philosophical overview of, of you know, why um, we should allow people to grow opium and why people should do it sort of um and why you know uh 
control over like pain management is uh like government control over that is like a particularly insidious thing because you can almost think of denying uh pain management is one of the most effective modes of control so he goes into the philosophical stuff i mean it's just he's just kind of like a normal libertarian guy but libertarian guys are normally just like into weed and that's very boring i think i mean you know no offense to any weed people but um you know that's been done that fight is almost won um in terms of legalization and, 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 and everything and, and what form of victory is it I, I mean the 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 victory for marijuana has been like uh as as widely been declaimed you know as as totally racially like um biased in favor of you know many many years of um you know cases not being wiped for people who were previously jailed for marijuana convictions like it's been a it's been a commercial victory and an opium on the other hand i feel like uh opium growing is 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 genuinely like more of a a direct challenge to the to like government sovereignty in a, in a certain sense right right and so we take jim hogshire our hero here um and so he wrote this sort of like philosophical not intro exactly but first part of the book but then it's it's i think as far as i know at least in english or translated um the only like book that's this thorough about both growing opium poppies and every method of harvesting or turning it into like some kind of tincture or drug you know or various like forms of taking it yeah, it's tea. the most thorough book that i know yeah right yeah we have it yeah there there really is a truly a really kind of a absurd variety of ways that it's possible to to consume opium, um, you know, beyond yeah. just like tar and resin. Right. We will get into that. And I have some interesting stories about that too, but you know, I actually wanted to start with, um, this podcast is about, it's not about me. It's about, um, this cause it's about, you know, disabled people all over the world, but I wanted to give a brief overview on you know my background and why i particularly um support and plan to continue to use um opium and grow it and harvest it um yeah so anyway i had um a few bouts of like nasty infectious disease uh kind of coupled with at this point, we're still like, I still need to go to a geneticist, but it seems like some kind of connective tissue disorder. So at a young age, I got craniocervical instability, which is just this nasty stuff where your ligaments get damaged and your skull sinks down, compresses your brainstem. Um, so, I mean, the good news is that this is fixable somewhat by surgery, but First of all, you have the pain while you're waiting for surgery. And then you have after surgery, you know, it's not just chronic pain patients that are getting cut off pain meds. There's this popular idea that I think is very misguided that we're still like really over prescribing pain meds and that that's fueling the opioid crisis when the data is really that it's basically um all like a fentanyl and heroin crisis um and uh so yeah so you Isn't have it true in a certain sense that yeah well it goes it becomes it 
it turns into fentanyl and heroin crisis once it, because of the, in a certain sense, because of the strengthening of restrictions on other yes, things exactly. and because of the increase in price on more uh, like, uh, you know, quote unquote, over the counter um, kind of forms. Well, yeah, not just over the counter, but, uh, I, but I believe you're referring to, yeah, prescription meds. Yeah. So not over. Yeah, that, sorry. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it really is like a simple matter of we have these drugs that are insanely cheap um, and time tested palliative meds. Um, and that's the class of opioid drugs. They're very cheap to produce. And the only reason that pure, you know, like oxy, dihydrocodine, codeine, um, um, opana, whatever, uh, Vicodin is the only reason that that's expensive on the street is because supply has been cut down, but um, that is doing nothing to stem the overdose crisis on fentanyl and heroin. And in fact, probably for multiple reasons, um, one of them being that legitimate, like uh, chronic and acute pain patients need these pills and sometimes even turn to street heroin when they can't afford um, uh, or when they get cut off from pain meds for many reasons. Um, yeah, it, this crackdown on supply makes, um, you know, pure safe opioids very expensive. So people turn to like Fentadope, as uh, most people call it, um, just heroin with unknown quantities of fentanyl. And this is true for both addicts and for um, people with chronic pain. You know, there's some like very kind of normy people with chronic pain that um, that don't necessarily have opioid use disorder or meet any of the criteria that actually will go out in the street and seek um out heroin and fentanyl because they're so desperate for relief when they get cut off on this shit. And it's just, you know, yeah. Um, but to get back to what you're saying, yeah, it, absolutely. So in like the nineties or early two thousands, Oxy was incredibly cheap and now it's like a dollar milligram. It's insanely expensive. And uh, unless you're wealthy, um, or at the very least middle to upper middle class, you simply cannot afford that, whether you're a pain patient or an addict. So yeah, you get fentadope and then you'd, uh, you know, probably OD and die of it. This is, uh, I think, uh, what this reminds me of, this is a topic we've discussed a, a couple times among ourselves before, but the one, in, in one sense, one of the problems here is of course the, the restriction and like the strengthening of restraints on the prescription and like the, the ease of ability for people with chronic pain to get pain medications. But in, uh, this is our, the kind of Foucauldian point that we discussed a little bit before, or um, in, in another sense, it's also because the only way to, pain, pain management has, inst has been uh, institutionalized in the medical establishment in that one has to, it, the ability and the, the right to manage one's pain. Um, has been kind of taken from the population in, in most countries. It's been rendered a process that one needs to submit oneself to um, rather than an ex than like something that can be done communally or at one's own ease. 
in that kind of sense. Right. Yeah. And I would go, you know, um, so far as to say that, um, well, I mean, first of all, let's remember that it was a pro- just any time previously to the 1940s, I believe. I could be a little bit off. It could be 1930s, but it was certainly within that the past century that not just opium and laudanum, you know, which for our readers, in case they don't know, in case they're not enthusiasts, like Herb Saint and I, um, is a uh, alcohol opium tincture um that that and also heroin syrups were available over the counter and there wasn't some kind of idea that this was a crisis i'm sure some people overdosed on it some people overused it but you know you could say that about alcohol as well but this is where i want to segue into uh you know what's important about opium and pain management is like exactly like you said, um, it's been not only taken out of the hands of patients, but taken out of the hands uh, of many doctors. Like uh, there are a lot of kind of old school doctors who have no personal issue with prescribing pain meds to those who need it, but are just looking over their shoulder all the time, uh, thinking that they will, you know, get. Um, their license taking away for prescribing, et cetera, et cetera. And so it just creates this atmosphere of fear for um, uh, doctors. And it, that's very counterproductive for like two reasons. Um, one of them being that um, people need pain medication. Now doctors um, are afraid to prescribe it. But the other being that um, that kind of you know, these kind of crackdowns actually weed out compassionate doctors. And that's, uh, medicine is not a profession that always produces the most compassionate people, especially now. I would say that med school is kind of like intense hazing. Uh, It selects for people who are intelligent, but also sometimes sociopathic. And, um, but not all of them are bad, but some of the good ones get weeded out by just, you know, you you can get um, in major trouble as a doctor for prescribing opioids, even if it was done appropriately, just because there's so few kind of hard rules about what is appropriate versus inappropriate use. And now we have over-specialization, like we have now like a family medicine doctor can't do all of this shit, even though they used to do womb to tomb, taking care of people in palliative care. You have pain management only like that. This is really significant. And I think it kind of segues um, when you previously made a point about the 1930s and, and the 1940s and the ability. Uh, so it, it, it and as we were talking about, we were talking about taking pain management back into the patient's hand. But I think talking about the family doctor is really significant. And really, we're also talking about bringing pain management back into the community's hand. Like um, it's a yes, it's a relationship yes. that's more than just uh, like um. The interesting thing that it, this has made me think of the historical angle is particularly appealing to me um, in terms of my like reading and research on this. But there's like in the 1930s, like and and, and in in Europe as well, and in fact in in China before um, 1911, before the revolution, and, um, there were. I mean, the not only could you not only could one seek out 
pain, like stuff, opium and laudanum for pain management at the chemist. But like, um, you, one, one could also, you could go further than that. It was a more bold medical vision where you could, you could seek out drugs for almost like a, for, for a positive purpose, not just to treat symptoms, but to like help yourself, your cognition when you wanted, like everyone laughs at Sherlock Holmes taking cocaine in Arthur Conan Doyle, but there was a vision of, but that's your works. But there was a vision of, yeah, there was a vision of understanding that drugs could be used and the, the states that drugs induce could be used for positive purposes. Um, and I think that that's lost in society a lot today, that the, the idea that right there's a it, not only pain management, but also positive. Right. Yeah, right. And I could go on and on about this biopolitical shit, but it, it is really, uh, you know, uh, interesting to consider. Uh, no, it's really important for our listeners because, you know, um, chronic pain isn't like necessarily universal. I mean, people, pain is, people experience pain at some point in their life, uh, you know, almost, but um, there's this widespread perception that, you know, people are getting over prescribed pain meds and that that's what's feeling the crisis. And I think that, you know, I probably thought that like before I had this cervical spine issue you know i it's just um it's sold by the media it's um a very widespread misperception but like the truth is it's excruciatingly um difficult to get prescribed pain meds and let me give a few anecdotes um so um you might say, okay, well, there's a lot of debate about whether opioids are appropriate for chronic pain, but let's talk about um, acute pain. There are many people that are not getting prescribed appropriate opioids for just post-surgical pain. And you can have strokes because of pain, untreated pain. It can impede the healing process. It can impede mobility. So this is a major deal. It, and, um, you know, a lot of surgeons now will only stick to like prescribing two weeks of pain meds, even if like in my case, it's a major neurosurgery, like a, a fusion. And then you're on your own to find some kind of like pain specialist and the pain specialists, um, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of the old school family, compassionate family medicine doctor. It's like, um, a lot of bureaucracy, you know, a lot of drug tests, you can get kicked off, you know, not, not offered pain meds if you test positive for weed, which, you know, I don't smoke weed, but I, th I still think that's insane, you know, because, um, yeah. And so, and also if you think about very, very ill people, like bedridden people having to go in their clinic and pee in a cup, like every couple of weeks to get their meds and then honestly and then having you know multiple tiers of issues with this like pharmacists um uh you know also refusing to fill some of the scripts you know all of that it's very difficult uh, a lot more than the average person would think and um yeah but i could go on about you know the difficulties of that all day but i'm i want to try and be a little concise so i want to get to some of the the stuff about where opium comes into this vision. Like, like you said, it used to be um, sort of um, an individual and a communal right to use drugs, both 
recreationally and therapeutically and let, let us remember that there's not a fine or there's there is a fine line there's not a hard line between those two things you can um experience relief of pain and euphoria you know and um so on that note um you've had some experience smoking opium um tell me about it so i've i've had a uh, opium and i guess I've had three separate batches of opium. Uh, one of them I got to smoke more than once, but so uh, my first experience with opium was, was, was pretty brief uh, and, and kind of at least first time uh, a little bit unremarkable, but um, many, many, many people say that, you know, similar to um, other like uh, smokable drugs, you first time you, you might not get much of an, uh, an experience, but uh, in uh, when I was visiting, uh, I was uh, traveling in India. I was visiting a friend who was a, uh, like an archaeology student there and um in in north rajasthan and and this is a kind of the uh, northwest of india where uh kind of bordering on i mean does border directly on afghanistan and there's a there's a really uh long and traditional opium smoke culture here in fact um if you look historically i mean the earliest records of opium smoking are in like babylonia and and, uh, mesopotamia Uh, and so this is really like the the cradle of opium smoking and in fact still today um opium smoking is uh quite practiced uh, quite heavily and then this is kind of i I thought of this example as a particularly fitting example based on what you're just saying not only recreational but for pain management opium is very frequently smoked um by people in north Rajasthan as a wedding ceremony ritual um and traditional weddings. Um, in fact, it happened so commonly that I believe that there are British MP a couple of years ago admitted to having smoked opium at a Rajasthani wedding. And, but, but not only was it, um, is it smoked at weddings there? It, uh, it, it was also used traditionally for, for centuries, um, for pain management as well. Um, smoke communally. Um, and it's, I think, you know, one of the hotbeds of op- opium growing in the world connected to, uh, and the first time I smoked it, I got I got a, a big old headache and um, some pressure behind my eyes. Interesting. And um, I wonder if but, that's the thebane because you know there are alkaloids besides um, morphine and codeine, and sometimes it, there's lore that high thebane content can lead to uh, headaches. Yeah, it's interesting experience because I think you know when I previously tried other opiates or similar, so I'm like. Um, similar kind of drugs in the, the before that I, I think many times my very first experience was something I'd get a uh, kind of similar experience but the second time I smoked it which was uh, I suppose like a, a year or so after that um, it was much much uh, superior experience at that point actually uh, um, I feel I feel like I sound like a real globe hopper with this but at that point I was in Beijing um, and uh, I had a much better experience smoking opium in Beijing I got to it was a it was much much higher quality looking stuff. Uh, the the stuff that I smoked in India was a kind of almost a, a kind of crumbly r- reddish dry, um, a little waxy. But the um, the both, both times it was resin. But the resin that I smoked in uh, China um, was like black and kind of nutty smelling. And uh, this guy he uh, took like a rolled a ball of it. Um, this was uh, like an experience with some uh, old Chinese men in. Uh, kind of what, what these back alleys of, of Beijing are called hutongs, um, where, uh, yes, I've heard those. Those are like n- old neighborhoods. Yes. They're these old stone kind of squat. Um, they're kind of house housing communities built all connected together in like 
a whole kind of square block area, sometimes larger, like, um, and they're made of these um, quite beautiful, like gray uh, brick stone. And uh, they have like communal public bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, and uh, lots of back courtyards and stuff. And in Beijing, although it's less and less every year, there are lots of uh, uh, secret um, illegal bars and back alleys and things like that, where you can get late night snacks and things of that sort. And a friend of mine, a Thai guy who was a real um, reckless kind of, uh, I don't know, he got into lots of uh, interesting trouble in China. He was, he'd been playing Mahjong pretty often with some guys back there and we tagged along and these guys uh, took out a little ball of this resin, rolled it into, uh, stuck it on a paper clip, heated it up in under the lighter, put it in the like run around the center of a, uh, a, the pipe he had and we passed it around and it was pretty euphoric, like a really like slow from my head to my like fingers and, and feet like tingle it felt like i was sitting in the sun it was cold mm, mm. it was fantastic. yeah yeah, yeah. it's really good like a stuff. warmth that just starts radiating it was yeah, yeah. it's truly yeah very very radiating experience that was a that and that was that was really really ex positive experience for me right and so did you use um did you ever uh use like a traditional opium pipe um those are kind of hard to come across at least in the u.s so my, so in, in this, the, the pipe we smoked out of here um, kind of looked like, um, I mean, it, I believe it was uh, like a, like a kind of sailor's style tobacco pipe that this man had repurposed, but um, I do own myself. It's not, uh, you know, particularly like ancient or anything, but I do own an, op like a, an opium pipe of my own um, that I, and, and there something, and, and I, there's something that's particularly beautiful about them in the way that they encourage uh, that there, there's a whole process of ceremony around it. Um, it. I don't want to sound like comedic, but it's almost like tea ceremony. If you do it properly, um, I would love to properly go through the experience um, sometime. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. I myself have never gone, uh, never actually like experienced a proper, like, um, opium ceremony um, with a full kit, but it's almost like a Japanese tea ceremony. Yeah, neither have I. But let me just say, you know, uh, what's that like bougie um, uh, kind of fancy tea chain in in the U.S. that like um, has a, like these seats and tries to emulate that? Um, um, for, you know, what? Um, Dobra tea. Dobra tea. That's uh, what I'm thinking of. I haven't heard of this place. And there's. Oh, okay. It's just like, um, you know, most, uh, it, yeah, it's just like nice like that. You know, you sit on these cushions and they bring you oh, these yeah. like fancy teas. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I would love to see, you know, that happen, uh, when we, when we legalize opium. With just, opium tea. Yeah. Well, with opium tea, but also with opium smoking, just mm. to have this set up. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, let me talk about my experiences briefly. So I've both had the, the, I've both used opium, um, in multiple forms in a recreational and therapeutic context for, um, severe pain. Um, it, so when I first, um, actually my first experience, I'll be really brief. It was just really funny was making shitty poppy seed tea when I was in college. Cause I had tried other opioids 
Um, but, you know, we had just heard you could make um, morphine or opium tea out of poppy seeds that you get at Whole Foods. And, um, uh, you know, I tried this with a friend. It was very funny because I just went into Whole Foods and, um, and bought nothing else but a pound of poppy seeds. And they looked at me a little weird. Um, uh, but, yeah. So we made poppy seed tea, and it actually wasn't that great. You'd expect seeds from the bulk section in Whole Foods to be really good. Your connection just got really bad. Uh, okay. Now um, it's better. Now it's better. What was I last saying? Um, you're saying you bought the one, the bulk ones from Whole Foods, yeah. Yeah, they're not actually that good, um, and I'll get to why, or you know, I, no one knows why, but I'll get to some of the alternatives to that later, but... Yeah, that was just, um, so we got very mildly high and like, you know, just kind of light feeling. It wasn't great, mm. but, um, my next experience with, um, was just buying, um, some, some real opium, um, like latex as they call it, um, just the very dark, um, and like you said it smelled nutty. To me, it's kind of like almost like a bitter lettuce smell. Yeah, you know, like a uh, like a endive, something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and my friend and I realized that if you like smoke it out of like a weed bowl, you totally ruin it. You just like burn it, and it sticks up the like weed pipes. You can't do that. So, um, we went to like some hippie glass shop, and like basically ask them for a meth pipe without asking them for a meth pipe directly just you know like mm. yeah like a round glass because that way you can vaporize it um uh without burning it you know without a direct flame yeah. just um it's not as good as like a traditional opium pipe but it's something and that was fun my friends my friend and i um passed it back and forth and it was like it was a real experience we definitely felt it um but um fast forward to um yeah after i had my um cervical spine problem a really severe pain um i somehow found myself this is years later in a facebook group dedicated to poppy tea um because i thought you know maybe that could work even though the whole food stuff earlier had been so weak and um it um these people like it was a really interesting mix about like half of them had severe chronic pain um about like 75 percent of them were addicts and or recreational users and so there's some venn diagram overlap but some people were legitimately only just treating it using it for pain and they told me about how there are certain brands that aren't even necessarily the ones you'd expect um I'm, I feel fine naming these brands now because they're now shitty. I think like some of the legal stuff scared them and they stopped selling these really potent unwashed seeds, but it was nuts.com was one of them. Nuts.com? Insanely. Um, yes. And it was, it was, um, so I just made like tea with this. I didn't know what to expect. Made, you know, just like, okay. Uh, for the listeners, um, practical note when you make opium tea you don't want to boil the seeds or anything that would get some really nasty stuff out of them you just soak and shake soak and shake them and um you you want to shake them until ideally 
um, if they're good seeds, which is rare and rare nowadays, the water turns like brown. Um, it could be still a little bit of a little bit translucent, but ideally you want it to be like cloudy and brown. And so I drank some of that and I was like, holy shit, my pain was gone. I was so euphoric. Um, so my sound sensitivity, which is caused by like the cervical spine issues was gone. And I was just like floating. It was incredibly potent. Um, and I way more potent than that whole food stuff from a while back. And I was like, uh, blown away. I think, um, so sadly, um, nuts.com as well as a few other of those brands that sold the real potent stuff um uh, they i think they got cold feet about it i don't know if they realized how many people were using it for that purpose but okay so some this stuff is potent enough that you can od on it and um as a harm reduction note to listeners this is why um smoking opium is a bit safer because it comes on faster so you can titrate the dose more effectively it's not impossible to take it orally and have it be safe. And I'll get into that more later. But seeds are not standardized. You can have like a variance of like a hundred times potency in. It's not ideal. I, I think making crushed poppy pods is better. Um, but yeah, so some kid OD'd and died, which is sad. But it it's rare with tea, and it's not. Um, and I don't think this is just his parents kind of uh tried to start a legislative thing to ban unwashed poppy seeds essentially to ban poppy seeds that haven't been either washed yeah. or cooked to destroy the alkaloids um which uh, ended up so i saw in this group um all these people you know um a lot of them had to go back to just being in really severe pain because poppy tea was their only thing and, uh, the, i don't think the law passed but it had a chilling effect on the companies Um, but yeah, so that's how I got introduced to that. But, he, um, now I'm actually growing poppies and planning to, um, make opium via a different method than the traditional method. And since we're trying to get into some practical stuff for listeners, mm. because we want them to be allies and, and either help themselves or help others via, um, uh, uh, the milk of the poppy. Um, anyway, so the traditional method for harvesting opium, most people know it. Um, it's you take a ripe, um, opium poppy pod after the petals have fallen off and you slice it and some white stuff comes up and that white stuff then dries and turns dark brown or black and that's the opium latex raw opium latex 
and then you scrape all of that out and you probably like do this it's very labor intensive you do this with tons of poppies and then you put it into some kind of um uh you know container and then you can either just smoke that straight or eat that straight or you can try and get some of the plant matter out and purify it um uh, into a more refined form of opium but either way is opium but the more modern way and the way which while it's less romantic yields a slightly higher yield this is what um pharmaceutical companies use to get the raw opiate material that they work with you know because even when they're not um using making opiates which are um directly derived from the poppy they're often making things that um are uh, chemicals that the synthesis starts with opiates like um even a lot of synthetic um opioids um you have to start with morphine or thebane or codeine um for the synthesis so pharmaceutical companies and also what i plan to do is and what Jim Hogshire talks about in this book, which I recommend, is they make poppy poppy straw, which is basically just crushed up, dried poppy material after the poppies have totally um, ripened. And then um, what you do is you don't want to boil this because, like I said earlier, boiling is hot enough to release some nasty stuff from this um, pods and seeds, but you do want to make, um, bring it to like maybe a simmer or a little lower, just very warm, somewhere between very warm and hot water with this crushed poppy pod material. And then, um, you know, you can steep it for as long as you want to be safe. I mean, a lot of people would say, 15, 20 minutes is fine, but you know, there's, you can't overdo it as long as you're not boiling it. And then you strain that material out and then you take that liquid and you can boil it down and evaporate it all the way until you have opium. You actually get a slightly higher yield that way than if you just did the traditional method of slicing the poppy and getting the latex. Um, you still there with me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. I'm still here with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking, yeah, this is like so, so uh, comprehensive. Yeah, it's an ex ex excellent description here. Yeah. Right. That's what I would recommend. And yeah, and um, right. But here, yeah, here's um, a follow up thing. You can also, I don't um, actually drink alcohol, both for health reasons and because um, I've had some mild drinking problems in the past. So I don't prefer this, but you can, and this is one of the traditional things, make platinum, which is essentially just an alcoholic tincture of opium. And, you know, you can either make it with a lot of alcohol or a little. I mean, opium is very soluble in alcohol, so you can yeah. like... Yeah, I think laudanum's traditionally like about 10%. Um, I mean, now, nowadays, you know, it's it's difficult to, to gauge, you know, I mean, the percentage of your original materials, but... Yeah, I think it's a like a because morphine is about like it. I think it was like a one to ten scale kind of thing. Right. 
Well, actually, I, you know, I have the reference right here. I have Hodgson. Oh, yes, ex- excellent. Pulled up. Yeah. Um, the, there's laudanum, which is um, alcoholic tincture of opium. And then there's paragoric, which is an opium tincture with camphor as the solvent. And camphor is like uh, some kind of carbon, like uh, it's actually like similar in structure to diamondoids. Um, uh, it, it, and it's similar to like myrrh and shit. Uh, very. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's used for like coughs. I think actually it might be in Vicks vapor rub. So anyway, I'm actually not sure harm reduction wise if it's safe to take camphor internally, um, but. And I'm also not sure if opium is soluble for uh, through the skin. I'm not an expert. I'm just you know a lay person who who wants to convey this dying art and knowledge um, uh, to people. But that's something people can look into on their own. But yeah, paragoric um, was and laudanum were like the two of the main forms of uh, opium that would be at like drug stores in the Victorian era and etc. And so on. Um, People were yeah, freely able to use yeah, paragoric and laudanum to treat their uh, pains as the and, and anxieties as they themselves chose. Yeah, right. And you know, actually, opium does have effects beyond um, pain relief and euphoria. I let me um, briefly go into this um, because um, we're kind of on the topic of. Uh, you know, the beneficial aspects of self-medication. I mean, um, uh, opium was used to treat diarrhea, um, obviously, because it's slightly constipating. If anything, I would, well, more than slightly. If anything, I would say that's one of the main downsides. And I don't think it's that serious of a downside, but, you know, if you were a regular user, it's something to watch out for. It was used to treat diarrhea. It was um, used to treat, like, severe stomach pain and upset. Also, um, has been used by you know recreational users to treat um, sort of a more intangible mortal anxiety because it gives you this feeling like you're removed from time, and this is something a lot of the romantic poets talked about. Um, uh, kind of removes fear of death. Um, but yeah, one more thing is that. They're actually doing some research into opioids and treating depression. And this is something that is way under-researched because um, SSRIs kind of, despite very, very lackluster um, performances in clinical trials, kind of still have the market cornered on depression. And because opioids are old drugs, which um, are not, you know, going to be profitable you know, to put to use off-label for, like, a new thing. Um, and also because of, you know, all the controversy in, like, the opioid crisis. But I recently read um, about how buprenorphine, which is more commonly known as Suboxone, and that's in a form with... Uh, yeah, similar to Naloxone. And... Right. It's used for uh, medication-assisted treatment for addiction. Uh, it can also be used to treat pain. But this is the interesting thing. It has been discovered that it can be a very potent antidepressant for treatment-resistant depression. I read a case study of a guy who had 
major depression, like um, that was unresponsive to everything else. And he was also an addict and he had, um, or he had an addiction history and he had like schizoaffective disorder and he had depression that was so severe he was catatonic, mm. right? And he's in the psych ward, uh, non-resistant uh, to any kind of treatment, etc. And then they were like, well, the guy's an addict or he has an addiction history. Um, so I don't know. Why don't we give him uh, Suboxone? And it actually cured his treatment resistant depression. I mean, he That's started going through therapy. Right. Yeah. And you think of it as sedating, but this guy went from catatonic to you know, participating in group therapy and, uh, you know, being very active and social. Um, uh, yeah. So that's, I just want to, you know, put it out there that there's, you know, pain is universal. It's, it's enough that it's enough justification to keep opium legal or uh, make opium legal that it treats pain, but it also treats some other stuff too. Uh, I mean, you can extrapolate from that Suboxone case report and some studies that opium could be a good antidepressant. I say extrapolate because you know, no one's probably going to study this that intensely because, I mean, can you imagine the public outcry? I mean, this is now the class of drugs we demonized. I Now yuppies smoke weed and everyone's fine with it, I mean, except the cops and the federal government. But culturally, people are way more accepting of marijuana than um, opium and opioids. Um, they can't accept that there might be therapeutic value. I think it has a lot to do also, I mean, with the, the political context of opium, because it, it, it represents in terms of marijuana pain um, reduction is, is, is significant and it's not to be dismissed, but the, as we discussed before, the, there isn't really a historical precedent for, um, like, you know, mass societal um, use of marijuana as a regular pain and depression and, and a tool for self-communal medication. But we really do have um, a historical record um, of of opium and laudanum and these sort of drugs being used in a way that really, I feel like, uh, challenges the government's right, the, the, the sovereignty of the medical institution to maintain um, control and regulation over the flow and the access to pain medication. Marijuana has some some ability to do this, but it, it it's nowhere near. I, I don't think it represents anything like um, the. It doesn't have anything like the possibility, um, the power um, that we can take into our hands if we start growing opium, the way that opium does in poppies. recommend highly to readers to get this Jim Hogshire book, Opium for the Masses, Harvesting Nature, Growing and Harvesting Nature's Best Pain Medication. Um, but, okay, we, we never touched on the practical aspect of growing poppies. Okay, the great thing about poppies is that they grow in a really, really wide range of environments. I mean, people assume that they just grow in the desert because they hear Afghanistan, they think desert, and they don't realize that Afghanistan has like 
you know, some very high cold mountain regions and, um, you know, also some actually very lush um, humid regions. But um, no, poppies do not just grow in the desert. They grow in the U.S. They grow sometimes wild or naturally uh, anywhere from the Pacific Northwest to like Southern California to New Mexico, New England. I mean, the Southeast, they basically can grow in any region of the U.S. And I'm saying that because I think most of our listeners are probably going to be in the U.S. Um, and they might have this misconception that this is some exotic thing you can't It's not this grow here. tropical plant. There's a pretty considerable range, yeah. Yeah, but it is a little needy in some other ways. And I want to help uh, all you guys out there, your, our listeners, avoid mistakes. Um, uh it doesn't like transplanting so you need to plant the seeds directly in wherever you want them to grow um you you're not gonna start them in a pot indoors and then transplant them they will die um it's that was one of my first mistakes and it sucked um it also likes rich soil so you can have rich dry soil you can have rich um uh, you know, damp soil, um, they'll tolerate a wide range of like hot and cold and wet or dry conditions, but they definitely prefer rich soil. So like get some kind of manure or compost, um, or fertilizer. Um, and that's like the best. Um, and then they also, they do like to have at least some cold. So they're not, yeah, I guess they have a wide range within temperate and cold zones but um i think might not be uh as prominent in tropical regions because at least as my um farmers almanac tells me and all the guides have found they need cold stratification which is where the seeds um sort of get um the outer layer gets uh i think it's a little like cracked or just made more fragile by wintering you can do this in the fridge too but i mean the method i usually use is to throw a bunch of seeds just scatter them on top of spring snow if you have snow in your region um they don't need to go through the whole winter but they do need some cold um they do need a couple weeks of cold so if you don't have that i recommend um the refrigerator, but keep them dry so they don't like rot or anything. Just put the dry seeds in the refrigerator or even freezer. Um, but yeah, I I think the best method is to simply scatter them on the snow. Um, and then uh, as to how to obtain opium poppy seeds, um, you can find one of the best things that um, I used to do is just use seeds um, that we knew were good for poppy seed tea because if they're unwashed they're typically like not cooked or anything that could harm them so they're typically viable seeds so you could use them after you made tea but now that um, these poppy seed tea brands are sometimes uh, less good and are now washing their seeds um, that's not always an option so I would say you got to do some research on, because a lot of uh, the main seed companies like Fedco Seeds that sell seeds to um, 
both farmers and recreational gardeners. Um, a lot of these seed companies do not write the Latin name of the opium poppy because presumably it's in a legal gray area. It's legal to grow, but it's illegal Ooh, to harvest. Exactly. And they also just, they don't want attention. So they will not write Papavera somniferum, and, um, which is the opium poppy's Latin name necessarily. They will just have a whole bunch of different varietal names. And I can tell you that if you just do a little bit of digging on the internet and forums, you can find out um, which varietals, which commonly used uh, garden varietals um, are actually the opium poppy um, and which aren't because you do not want to grow. A couple of the lookalikes are mildly poisonous. I say mildly because it's not like a drop of this stuff is going to kill you, but it's like it doesn't have any of the alkaloids you want. And if you take enough of it, it could harm you. It's not a huge problem. You just want to get the varietals right. And some of those varietals uh, that I would recommend are, um, I think Elka OG is one of the names or um, bread seed poppy. Um, actually, I'm it's starting to forget uh, just off the top of my head. But like I said, this is very widely available. You can go and the subreddit are drug gardening and um uh yeah i named a couple but there are many more and then you can also find some seeds on amazon for sale since it's legal um that are like uh specifically papaver somniferum they're labeled that i'm just saying the main seed companies don't do that for some reason at least fedco doesn't so that makes it a little bit more tricky Again, this is completely legal um, buying, you know. It's completely legal to grow and it's illegal to harvest. But that makes it basically mean that uh, it's almost impossible to catch someone in this crime for and, that reason. Yeah, enforcement is, is non-existent, essentially. I mean, It's almost non-existent. And in fact, okay, so uh, one of the only examples of it is the guy who wrote this book getting maybe busted for some opium. I kind of forget the Michael Pollan article. You read it, so you could take over from here. So Michael, uh, yeah, Michael Pollan is, uh, you know, as many Americans know, he's a famous uh, food writer. He's a, as well as a writer for the New Yorker and a variety of other publications. Um, and uh, he um, wrote an ar article back in uh, Harper's that I have up here called Opium Made Easy uh, back in 1997. About his experience with um, uh, the, uh, growing opium at home himself um, uh, through inter uh, introduction, um, and in fact, he uh, himself was uh, introduced through uh, Jim Hogshire as well. Um, he uh, that that was his uh, first introduction to opium growing, and he had read, uh, if I remember correctly, he had read an article written by Hogshire in publications, and uh, I believe he'd written to him, and they had some correspondence. Um, he right. read um, opium for the masses as well, um, and I. He followed, uh, he decided to follow through um, with it. And um, Poland's, uh, the article is, is worth a read, I'd say, absolutely. Um, and, and it describes many of uh, technical aspects um, and, you know, in written, well-written terms. Um, describe many, um, you know, uh, and, and one of the, some of the kind of the joy and the fun of growing opium, which it's like parts like getting to score the pods and getting to see the right the milky sap it's it's really it's a, such a beautiful it's a, sight it's a I wonderful mean, experience like opium growing right. is beautiful not only for the end product but the flower itself and the pods um 
Yeah, and then unfortunately, Poland describes having going through all the steps, collecting all of it, and then uh, he decides, uh, or so he says at the end, that he chose not to um, go through with it. But he heavily implies that this was due to um, an inculcated kind of concern about um, war on drugs and um, his sort of career as a writer. So, you know, I think many of us can go through with it. Uh, I don't think, um, you know, and, and perhaps Poland did as well, but even uh, the article presents, uh, I would say quite a positive view um, and uh, like a quite a detailed picture of the opium growing experience. Right. And, but the article also describes that Jim Hogshire had a, was busted for drugs and it seems clear that, you know, targeted, since, yeah. like I said, it's, it's almost impossible to catch someone in the act of say harvesting opium, right? It, that's like, you know, it takes um, a few minutes, you know, in the traditional sense, it, out of like, you know, the, the actual growing takes, you know, months and they're there for months. And then you would have to catch someone within this tiny window. It's, it's very much, it's actually, it's not like, um federal marijuana uh, laws in which just growing it or owning it at all is illegal it's it's legal to grow and it's yeah well we already said that but so they targeted jim hogshire and if i recall i don't think they even found any opium but it's no, just they, that they uh, used that as a pretext to raid his house because he wrote this book and because he was spreading this info so kind of blatantly and publicly which is why i'm not going to use my full name on this podcast um because there's no point in just making yourself a target like that um, but yeah it was clear that he might be one of the few people that have been targeted for that and yet they didn't even i don't think they found any opium i believe they found some other drugs because they raided his house under the pretext of um looking for opium um because he was the author of these books and maybe that was enough for a warrant from a judge or you know actually if i recall maybe a neighbor ratted on him to give them material for a warrant but he was definitely you know being uh watched you know the government the cia yeah and in this article poland um questions whether there was a dea uh tap right yeah it's quite possible and it's interesting because um yeah we all know um, that the U.S. government um, abroad has had interesting relationships with poppy fields um, uh, and has sometimes had a hand in the heroin trade. Um, but then it, it's also about control. It's not just about promoting use of it domestically. Um, yeah, I don't know. that that The international politics of the opium trade and U.S. imperialism is a little over my head. Um, I don't know if you know anything about that as a well, student of history. I, I, I do. The modern manifestation is a little more questionable. I mean, I think um, opium is like a, I mean, it's a commodity that, uh, you know, those of us who are Marxists are interested in Marxism, I think, find particularly fascinating um, because it is, it's not, there, there are many commodities that are particularly good bellwethers for a study of certain um, sort of historical trends. And, and opium is a really fascinating kind of bellwether for, uh, I would say, 
for for imperialism and, and, and colonialism and, and even sort of strange new forms of colonialism in the 21st century. I mean, as everyone is well aware, you know, American troops have have, have stood by in Afghanistan defending, um, you know, protecting opium um, crops, um, defending right. um, seasonal opium profit. Um, but what's interesting is that, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the opium world supply now is like way more scattered than it was historically. I mean, Afghanistan is still, um, and Iraq are still the largest growing areas. And, and in these areas, in fact, right. like in, in, in these heavy growing areas, it's like a, a, a kind of total social phenomenon. Like a, we're in, like in Rajasthan where it's used in weddings and things like this, but as it's become like both this site of, you know, extreme like um, imperial colonial activity. Um, I think there's a clash between the kind of standard U.S. government desire to kind of become involved and, and, and co-opt um, or like put some legal control around um, like local drug laws and, and try to control things in a certain way, but also um, the the clear naked profit motive as well. And it, it's it's almost like a reproduction of like um, British colonial um, interests in uh, expanding the opium market in um, China as well. And these parties are, it's one of the few interesting kind of, you couldn't call a monopoly or anything, but it's one of the few uh, sort of interesting modern commodities that the, that there is like almost direct state military um, control over a significant portion of like the supply chain of um, right. In some right. extent, some extent, opium has not fully been like um, released to the free market. Uh, they still have this like Dutch East India U.S. military control over production of it. Like, would you say some form of rent seeking sort of? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. And I've I've heard um, that opium there are massive opium fields in parts of Mexico in uh, Tasmania actually, especially. Oh, fascinating. Um, and. Uh, Spain, the Czech Republic, some parts of Europe. Um, but yeah, um, it does seem, uh, I, yeah, I did not know that the supply was still um, mainly from Afghanistan or Iraq. I mean, I, I don't think so. I don't think so mainly, but um, just thinking of areas in terms of which, like, I um, mean, the, the U.S. military or... or oh, okay, yeah. I mean, in, in other countries as well, it's not a, a exclusive to the U.S. military, but in many, I believe, like, um, in a lot of countries where opium growing is is heavily done i think that there's a, a there's a compared to many other drugs because partially because of the agricultural scale needed there's a more direct relationship between the military um or the government um, itself and the actual like direct industry of opium growing word okay yeah so i want to get back to um a little bit you know we've gotten into like i think a good amount of practical detail enough that our listeners will be somewhat empowered but i wanted to go back a little bit to you know the argument of you know why why is opium good you know why should one grow it and um uh you you mentioned marxism briefly i do think that the idea you know okay um let's throw aside maybe the idea of like uh full communism for a second yeah and just think about like ip and um the idea of like the commons or whatever um you know um basically um the reason so many people 
there's there's no reason pain management has to be um, something that is gatekept by doctors, but even more so by like the insurance industry, pharmaceutical industry, and um, pharmacists, um, because pain management is um, something that we have, you know, more than thousand year old examples of uh, of this class of drugs working and of people using them on their own or, you know, to help treat a family member or, you know, in some non-medicalized uh, <clears throat> system. So there's no reason pain management has to be um, something that is um, gatekept by these industries. And, you know, when you can literally just grow grow this yourself, it's just a, it's a plant that's easy to grow. You could give some to your, um, <clears throat> you know, your grandmother with cancer, you, you know, just like, you know, um, you can take it yourself if you're feeling depressed. Um, I mean, and when, she, and, when you take and it, I think, yeah. Oh, sorry. When you take it into your hands like that, like this is the important part. This is why it's important not just to, I mean, taking opium for for pain management, but but specifically growing opium is because it's you're you're taking the control and the production back into your hands, and you're you're at, at, at like like Walker says, like you can give some to your grandma, like. Um, it, it makes you now like a, you, you no longer are you subsistent on like a specific site, um, like a specific right. place you have to go to receive pain management. It's back into your right. hands. Yeah. And I, and the reason taking, um, you know, obviously Marxists and leftists want to control, seize control of means of protection, but the reason why of any commodity, but the reason why opium is a bit special um, is two reasons that pain and the control of pain can be um, used as a, a method of political control and that the ability to um, palliate or relieve pain is very important politically. Um, and also that it's one of the most financially valuable commodities that you could produce um, very easily. Um, uh, so you're taking something that's medically um, and recreationally and culturally and financially very valuable, and you can just like grow it on tiny lots um, in your backyard, and you can um, resist um, these really uh, insane, harsh, um, you know, uh, restrictive laws about pain medicine and um yeah uh i think i'm gonna end on that because i have to get going and go to sleep soon um but it's been a really it's been a really great conversation yeah absolutely i just blew through all this dope so fast it's kind of sad big dope big dope i just smoke so much cram i gotta live no big dope Smoke it out the back. I just blew through all this dough so fast, it's kinda sad. Big dope, big dope, big dope, big dope.